Welcome to Sound Business, the podcast that reveals how sound affects your business outcomes, from the productivity and well-being of your staff, to your sales and profit, your brand value, your marketing effectiveness, your customer experience, and all your key relationships. I'm Julian Treasure, Chairman of the Sound Agency and five-time TED speaker, with over 100 million views for my TED Talks about sound, and I'll be your guide as we discover the power of sound to boost your business's success, as well as your own happiness, effectiveness, and well-being. In all my years of working with sound, I've only ever encountered one person who disliked birdsong. The birds have been on Earth far, far longer than we have. Latest estimates are that modern birds evolved before the dinosaurs died out, some 60 million years ago. Modern humans are less than a million years old. We've evolved to the sound of birds, so it's no surprise that their songs affect us. First, the sound of happy songbirds is reassuring to us because we've learned that when they're singing, the environment is likely to be safe. Second, Birdsong stimulates our cognition because we know that when the birds are singing, it's time to be awake. And third, research has now shown that birdsong is actually good for our health. Of course, quality matters here, as with all sound. I wouldn't bet too much on there being a therapeutic or performance-boosting effect from the cawing of crows or the quacking of ducks or the piercing shrieks of raptors. But typical forest or parkland birdsong is pleasant without being distracting. It's stochastic, which means randomly distributed to create a relatively uniform wash that never repeats. It's a sound we're so familiar with that we can easily place it in the background of our listening, enjoying it with almost no cognitive load. And that's what we do most of the time. We take it for granted. But when you look and listen more closely, birdsong actually is a daily miracle that really rewards a few minutes of careful examination. To do that, I've enlisted the unmatched experience of Professor David Rothenberg. David is Distinguished Professor of Philosophy and Music at the New Jersey Institute of Technology, and he's also a world-class jazz clarinetist. He's investigated the relationship between humanity and nature for many years, and he wrote the classic international bestseller, Why Birds Sing, which records his many experiences making music with birds around the world and was turned into a feature-length BBC TV documentary. Another book, Thousand Miles Song, is on making music with whales, while Bug Music focuses on insect sounds. As well as his philosophical writings, David has released 16 albums. He has a YouTube channel with his latest concerts on it, and he has his own podcast called Soundwalker. So who better to answer my first question, how many animals make music? It's a great question. It depends on what you think music is. I think that uh, one view of evolution puts forth the idea that most of the communication in the animal world is more like music than it is like language in that there are so many animals that perform, they make their sounds, they, they 
perform them over and over again, more like a piece of music than a language where you're interacting and responding and saying specific messages. The performance is key. And this could include, you know, insects could be our first uh, sources of rhythm. Uh, frogs and crickets are making these repeating simple patterns that together form this kind of emergent complexity. And you have many birds that are singing, that are presenting the same sound patterns over and over and over again, like a piece of music with a beginning, a middle, and an end, and with a real passion and energy and shape to it. And that's why these sounds are called songs in most human languages. And of course, under the ocean, we have humpback whales and many other creatures. The oceans are very loud indeed, and I imagine there's quite a lot of music going on down there in one form or another. Uh, and then, and then other species, I suppose, one person's music is another person's noise. So whether one would call uh, a wolf howling musical or not, um, certainly it, it can be taken in that way. Um, and so many species are making music. We're not exclusively uh, the music makers on this planet. Let's talk about birds specifically, because uh, this is what this podcast is all about. And you wrote uh, a book I really, really loved called Why Birds Sing. And indeed, there's a website uh, with the same name. And you've done a huge amount of playing music with birds, with your clarinet and them singing. Do you find they actually interact with you? Are they aware of what you're doing? Do they respond to what you're doing? I think it really depends on the species. I think that uh, you know each bird species is like a world in itself and and birds really have a specific aesthetic sense like each species that makes its own music has a kind of music that it likes that it wants that it's very particular about and very very discriminating and this is something that darwin realized when he wrote in the descent of man that that birds have a natural aesthetic sense and they appreciate beauty, and that's why they evolved beautiful plumages and beautiful songs and sometimes beautiful dances and, and, and the need to, to perform and present themselves. They are one whole class of animals for whom aesthetics really matters, the beauty of the process. Whatever function you identify birdsong is for, there's an aesthetic side as well. And it's very important that Darwin recognized that. It's very important because so many biologists since then tend to ignore this aspect of his theory and emphasize that which seems practical and functional and they say beauty has nothing to do with it and these are people who are just not paying attention to what's out there. Now before we get into the why then, um, although that's hinted strongly at your view of why, let's talk about the how because some of the most amazing things in your book were um, physical things about the way birds do this the, the, the number of notes they play, the complexity of the melodies they remember, apart from anything else, and their ability to repeat those melodies note for note is extraordinary. And yet they have brains the size of, well, smaller than walnuts, most of them. How do they do this? Well, you know, a little brain can go a long way, of course. And, uh, and the birds also have a syrinx instead of a larynx. A syrinx has two tubes in the throat, and that enables them to make you know, two sounds at exactly the same time. And, and they, they uh, have evolved this expert way of, of, of massaging the syrinx and pushing air through it, and they're able to make an amazing amount of sounds. That being said, the real amazement is in the brains of the birds, which in many species has the ability to learn. They learn new sounds throughout their lives in some species. In other species, they can only learn for a few months in the beginning of their lives. But birds learn with sound, and not so many animals do. Humans do, 
whales and dolphins do, but chimpanzees and other primates do not. This is why you cannot teach uh, chimpanzees to speak. As intelligent as they are, they have to communicate with us by pointing, by touching keyboards and things like that. You cannot teach them to learn with sound. But why do birds have the ability to learn with sound that people have, but other animals do not? It's very mysterious to science. And when they're learning with sound, how does that change their brain? Have, has, has anybody hooked them up to an fMRI scanner or something like that? Yes, and even before that, the most revolutionary discovery about what goes on in birds' brains is when they learn new songs, new connections are formed in their brains, new neurons are formed. And this research done by Fernando Nottebaum on canaries in the 1960s is what enabled us to change the long-thought dogma about brains, that when a brain reaches adult state, it was then fixed, and you only lost brain cells and did not gain them. It turns out that's not true. If you learn a new song, your brain is going to get new brain cells. This is good for you. It keeps the brain alive and improves it and, and intensifies its ability to think just by learning new songs. So this is one analogy from that, that music is good for you. Learning music is going to keep your brain alive and active and healthy longer. Well, that's interesting. I have definitely seen research that musicians have bigger brains than non-musicians because some of the parts of the brain are more developed. So that makes me feel good, even though I'm um, a drummer. I'm sure it's still true. Absolutely. Drummers may have the biggest brains of all. <laughs> I hope so. Now, let me ask you something about the way birds learn. You've said that some birds well, the birds learn their song in their first few months of life. And I guess they learn that the way that, um, say, an Indian tabla player would learn tabla at the feet of their, their master, their teacher, in, that, in this case, probably their parent, just listening and repeating and listening and repeating. Um, can they learn a different song? If you took a thrush and put it in the nest of another species of bird, would it learn the different song? Yes, a lot of experiments have been done on baby birds and put them in, in an unfamiliar context, teach them the wrong song, and they will do very well learning it in many cases, put them back into the society with their usual uh, species, and most of them will figure out the right song soon enough, except you know there are many species that can only uh, learn in the first few months of life. There are others that learn throughout their lives, like canaries and nightingales and song thrushes, but... Uh, most of them only learn when they're very young. So you get a bird, he'll have the wrong song. You can you get him out there in society. He'll keep using his wrong song and see how far he can get with that. And uh, the results are mixed <laughs> when that's tried out. But a lot of experiments have been done of this kind because uh, it's so interesting to study vocal learning, learning with sound, because it's so rare in the animal world. And the answer, of course, like in most scientific answers, is there's so many different answers. They're not all the same. But it's definitely clear that uh, birds can uh, learn different songs than they're supposed to learn. And then if they, if they still have that learning ability, if they're that kind of bird, you put them back in bird society and they, they'll figure out what song is required and usually be able to learn it once they're back. They learn not only from their parents, but from adult birds. Usually in the adult males, most of the males are singing. But some species, like I know in the catbird, the gray catbird in America, they raised one, several they raised alone to see what kind of songs they'd figure out with no teachers. And they seemed to do okay. They figured out the song. They learned it on their own by practicing, which is kind of interesting. Well, that is remarkable. That's seeing music as a, an instinct, as a genetic inheritance, which is a very interesting way 
to see it. Now, when you slow birdsong down, which you have on your website, and there are some really beautiful examples of slowed down birdsong sounding like Miles Davis trumpet solos or, uh, you know, jazz riffs. When you when you slow it down and it becomes like human music, you get to appreciate the complexity of it. And I'm fascinated to know whether birds use uh, harmonics. I mean, do they work with the the natural harmonic series, for example, or are they pretty atonal? Do they make it up? Are they are they into quarter tones and even more gradations than that? And do they use time signatures that we would recognize? I mean, that's a matter of great scientific debate, actually. Just yesterday, I was speaking to Ofer Chernikovsky, the birdsong researcher, about this. And I always ask birdsong scientists this. Birds, there are certain birds that are making sounds very much in line with the harmonic series, like the butcher bird in Australia, like also the Australian magpie. You hear these overtones that are very much perceived by humans as being in the natural harmonic series. Is it only humans that perceive this series? And I never get a straight answer on that. Usually they say it's only humans and that birds are not grasping it the same way we do. I think they don't necessarily hear an octave as being the same note, things like that. But you know, I think that it's just not known, the answer to that question. It's definitely true that there are certain birds that um, are clearly singing notes that sound like they're, they, would be, they would be understood as scales by humans. But when you say that to scientists, they say, careful, you're extrapolating. That's how your brain is perceiving it. You don't really know. And I say, well, come on, scales are about ratios between notes. And you can be as objective a, about that as about anything else. And uh, I know Chernikovsky's belief is that a lot of the things that birds pick up in song is rhythm-based and not necessarily tone-based. Like Specific rhythms are very much um, you know, recognized by each species. They know what the right rhythm is for their song. So in a sense, they do have their own type signatures. But they're not as interested usually in the regular beat as humans are. Although you'd be surprised once again, this regular beat thing is a big matter of scientific debate, whether birds respond to repeating regular rhythms. I would say anyone who spends time with them would say, yes, they do all the time, but it's not generally accepted by science that they do. Now, there are some birds that simply don't sing. I mean, corvids, for example, um, are not particularly pleasant to be around. That's not a nice noise they make. And one wonders why that happened. Where did they get left out of the uh, the queue for lovely bird song? Well, there's a lot of birds that sing that make sounds we don't like. Like the song of the starling is really interesting. It's definitely a song. It has real complexity. People don't like it. They don't recognize it as being musical, but it really is in its own way. Even the song of the lyrebird, perhaps the most complex of all bird songs, it takes them six years to learn it is quite noisy and unpleasant to a, to a lot of human ears, but it's definitely a song. But you're right, there's other birds that use sound a whole different way, like crows and ravens, magpies. They use sound in a much more linguistic kind of complex manner. And, uh, you know, those sounds are, are interesting. They're not so much musical in that they're not these kind of performances with a beginning and middle and end that are listened to and taken in. They're, they're more interactive. They're more like the sounds, say, of uh, dolphins and beluga whales who are squeaking back and forth to each other, saying all kinds of things. And, of course, there are many birds that do not learn songs that only make sounds generally understood as calls, which often have a more specific meaning, you know, the sounds of many ducks and uh, chickens and things like this. Uh, chickens actually learn sounds, but uh, 
there's many birds that are making other kinds of sounds that we we don't call songs. And it's so fascinating that so many human languages throughout history have identified certain bird sounds and said these are songs and said others are not. Like they, they intuited something about these sounds that made them more like music. I guess we have to be careful not to anthropomorphize all the time and um, to classify birdsong as song just because we like it. One wonders, thinking back, I mean, I know there's, uh, I don't know if it's a proven theory, but the theory is that birds and dinosaurs are pretty closely related. I wonder if there were any singing dinosaurs. Generally, among those extrapolating dinosaur scientists, most of them believe that, yes, dinosaurs probably had something like a song. There's even one CD of dinosaur songs by Jean Rocher. It's a very serious guy. He put on this beautiful line of recordings coming from France of all kinds of animal sounds. But there's one that's dinosaurs, which obviously is all made up. But he, he doesn't say that. He just says it was recorded. He just uh, They're kind of like slowed down birds and strange things. It's really like a composition, but it looks like a, a field guide to dinosaur sounds. So I recommend that. And also there are certain people studying uh, the shapes of dinosaur heads and saying something like the Parasaurolophus with its big kind of triangular, uh, strangely shaped head with the kind of uh, crest going back could very well have been a resonator for sounds. And, uh, but all of that is, is conjecture. We'll never know, probably, but it would have been a very weird and wonderful soundscape, I'm sure, a few million years ago. Now, let's move on to the why then, David. I mean, you've in your book, basically, your thesis is that it's not just about territory and it's not just about mating. It's because of aesthetics. Uh, and do you believe that's true? It's years since you wrote the book. You've been playing with birds since then, making music with them. Are you still committed to that view? Well, one thing, people who criticize my view generally don't understand it. I'm, I'm not against the idea that birdsong has functions in uh, defend, defending territory and uh, in looking for a mate. The fact is, announcing that function says very little about what the birds are doing. It says almost nothing. Because look, look, the song of a nightingale is very different than the song of a chaffinch, but the function is the same. So if you say, oh, this bird is defending territory and is looking for a mate, end of story. You said nothing about the actual music, about what the bird is actually doing. And the fact is these animals have evolved a real need for a highly developed aesthetic sense. Many other animals defend territory and look for a mate, and they do it with very simple sounds that because of sexual selection, females just preferring these more involved, extensive musical things, these birds have evolved the need to do it. So that's how we got that. That's how birds evolved this behavior. But what is actually going on? These birds are making music. The birds are singing because they have to. It's only on the last page of my book that I say, what's the answer? Why birds sing? Birds sing because they have to. They must. They need to. And it's the same with people. We need to make music. We need to listen to music. Whatever function you decide that has... It's not taking away from the, the, the need is what comes first, the fact that this must be done. Birds must sing. And those who study such things, you know, can analyze what's going on inside the brain of the bird. They find uh, dopamine is released. The bird is addicted to singing. So if you want to take a scientific study and prove that they're addicted to singing, you can do that. Or you can just go listen and admire and appreciate and realize that 
this intuitive sense of what's going on is not wrong. Our intuitions are very often right when it comes to making sense of appreciating and trying to find ways to connect to nature. We are right when we feel like it has meaning and it's beautiful. But there is a fear that birdsong is a vanishing phenomenon. Um, in the UK, for example, many, <clears throat> excuse me a moment. <clears throat> in the UK, for example, many uh, species of birds are far less prevalent than they used to be. I remember sparrows in, in my youth were all over the place and I barely see them anymore, certainly in London. Is birdsong under threat? Well, this is a big part of the story that uh, when we were just, I just spent the, the month of May traveling around making music live with nightingales. And when we did that in Sussex in England, very much the story was one of um, a kind of loss that it was very hard to find nightingales. And we, we would trek out with the folk singer Sam Lee, the cellist Matthew Barley. We went out and played live with nightingales to a small select audience. But then again, I told them I was doing this in Berlin, and the city of Berlin is full of nightingales. They're on every street corner, singing and singing and singing, and we were kind of wondering why that is, that there are so many of this bird that is, is harder and harder to find in, in the UK. Why are there so many in a city that's kind of dilapidated and half fixed up? And I think that's why it is. There's a lot of green in Berlin. And certainly humans are destroying habitat of migratory birds, you know, where they go in the winter and in the summer. So the many species are under threat, but they're not all gone. Certainly not. So um, I would say if you pay attention to these songs, interact with bird songs, take it more seriously. You as a human cannot help but start to appreciate nature more and will find your own way to do something about it to make sure that how we survive into the future will be in a way that is closer in line with nature and not destroying nature. Of course, we have a lot of things to fight against there, you know, running out of energy sources, too many people, pollution, all this kinds of stuff. There's a lot of threats to nature. I think in our own little way, taking birdsong more seriously can get people to appreciate nature more and hopefully work to save it, to live with it, to be closer in harmony with it and not destroy it. Well, amen to that. David, thank you so much for your time and your insights. That's been truly inspiring. Thanks so much for talking to me. When you understand the wonders of birdsong like that, it's really no surprise that this stuff is good for us. There's not yet too much scientific research on birdsong's effects on people's feelings, but one person has published on the topic. Dr. Eleanor Ratcliffe is a lecturer in environmental psychology at the University of Surrey. And she researched this exact topic for her PhD thesis. So I asked her, apart from simple pleasure, how does birdsong affect us? Self-reported reduction in how stressed people feel. Often that goes hand in hand with pleasure. So in addition to feeling happy, people feel less stressed. Also, they feel more interested in their surroundings. And also they feel like those sounds are taking them away from their everyday concerns or taking them away to a, a different place. So there's this idea of psychological escape maybe from everyday life or from what might be troubling them. I think a lot of people also have anecdotal reports about how birdsong has helped them through difficult times as a, a symbol of positivity or of life and vitality. And when I've been doing my research, that's also something 
I've come across in, in talking to the participants. So they've, they've associated birdsong with this feeling of things going to be all right. But in some of my research, I was looking at specific acoustic properties and aesthetic properties of, of different types of bird sounds. So how loud or quiet they are, their frequency corresponding to how high or low pitched they are, whether the sound is noisy and rough or smooth and harmonic, and also things like complexity and pattern. I found that people tend to respond most positively to bird sounds that are quiet, high pitched, harmonic, and they give people through those kinds of qualities a sense of security and safety but also people respond very positively to bird sounds that have this sense of complexity there's quite a lot going on you know it's a it's a sound made up of lots of different elements but those elements are constrained in some kind of pattern or coherent order so the the information is presented in a way that's easy for people to process and therefore maybe not overstimulating so this is all to say that people's perceptions of bird sounds vary very much on the perceptual properties of the bird sounds. And then over and above that, the, the interpretations or the associations that people have. Does locality matter with birdsong? I mean, it's an interesting question for us in designing soundscapes around the world. Uh, sometimes it may be that you want to use local and sometimes you want to give people a taste of something different. But is there any evidence about people's relationship with birdsong, which perhaps isn't something they're familiar with? Australian birdsong, for example. That's something I looked at in one of my studies. Um, so the the relationship between people's perceptions of bird sounds and how familiar or novel they were. And it turns out that that subjective familiarity was a very strong predictor of how much people liked the bird sounds and felt they would be relaxing. So the most relaxing bird sounds were those that were perceived to be familiar to people, to perceive to be something they might hear in their garden. We don't just respond to sounds in our environment based on their objective properties, but also how we interpret those sounds. And sometimes our perceptions can be different to, to what is objectively true, but we respond to them based on, on what we think is, is true. Yes, I do know that the seagulls, for example, are, are very marmite. <laughs> they tend to divide people. Some people love them, associated with beaches, holidays, sea, and other people find them, uh, they think they're sort of flying rats <laughs> and don't like the sound at all. So filtering is so important, and that, it's very interesting the way that's come out throughout this. Anything else I should ask you about birdsong? Anything we haven't covered that you think we ought to? One of the... The nicest things that came out of all of this work that I did was asking about people's memories and associations of bird sounds that made them happy. And people would talk a lot about memories of their childhood or of important places and, and people in their lives and the, the birds that were associated with that. The finding I was left with when I finished that work is that people can build a whole world in their mind through memories and associations based on just listening to one very small sound of, of a bird. And it can take them to a specific time or a specific place in their memory that uh, is very valuable to them. And it's something that they can return to and brings them a lot of happiness and a, a sense of calm. So I think that's a really positive outcome and something that people can practice for themselves if they, they listen to the world around them. And then you can take that memory with you. Well, sometimes it's the commonplace things that we take for granted and barely notice that when you give them space and time to reveal themselves, display 
astonishing depth and complexity. Birdsong is a wonder of this planet, and I suggest that it's an essential element of our connection with nature, good for our health, happiness and productivity. Most of the biophilic soundscapes we design at the Sound Agency feature it in one way or another for all these reasons. So I hope this podcast has opened your ears to this simple but invaluable sound and that you will appreciate it all the more as a result. Sound Business is brought to you by the Sound Agency, designing effective business sound since 2003 and is co-produced by Podcast Network Solutions a full-service podcast production company who are ready to help you plan, record, produce and promote your message with podcasting. To find out more about how the Sound Agency can boost your business with bespoke sound and to grab your free copy of our four golden rules for sound, visit thesoundagency.com forward slash podcast.